So last week, Paul wrote those famous words, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul was able to say this, even though he was in prison, and humanly speaking, he didn't know how this was going to end, uh, but he was able to say this either way it ended up, to, if he lives, if he dies, he could say this because his ultimate focus was on Jesus Christ and serving him, and Jesus Christ was his, his ultimate treasure. And so if he continued to live, he would continue to serve Jesus Christ, and if it happened that he were to be put to death, he knew that all they would be doing is uniting Paul with the one that is his ultimate treasure uh, forever. As one Christian has said, you can't threaten me with heaven. And that's all that they could do to him is just threaten him that we might, we might kill you. And he said, great, I'll be with my Savior if that's what you do. So Paul was talking about his situation. We saw his attitude. And now in these next verses, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, 27 through 30, it's going to shift from Paul talking about uh, kind of explaining his situation, his experience, to talking to the Philippians and instructing them and telling them what their attitude should be, what they need to do. So we're going to see this shift that happens, and we're going to see that treasuring Christ uh, is not just about heaven then one day, but it is about also a change in lifestyle now as we live in this earth and we live here together as believers in the kingdom of Jesus Christ together. So let's read chapter 1, 27 through 30. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have." We're going to walk through this. We're going to spend a lot of time in verse 27, especially. And the first point that I want to give you to summarize this is to live your life in a way that is consistent with being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. And I'm going to have to unpack a little bit to show you how I, how I get to that summary. We see in this section here, that this is actually the first uh, imperative in this letter. An imperative is a command statement. So this is the first thing that Paul is telling the, uh, the Philippians, this is what you ought to do, this is what you need to do, what he's calling them to do. And he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I live, whether I, Paul says whether I die, and he's pretty convinced that in God's providence he's going to have him live at least for, for a while longer, but either way, he's saying, I want you to, to live your manner of life in such a way that it is, it is a match. It is consistent uh, with this gospel of Jesus Christ by which you are saved. But looking at this and looking at uh, the, the original text, I realize in order for us to kind of have an even deeper grasp as far as what this means, we need to do a little bit of world history here for a few minutes. So, 
Think of this. This is being written to, well, this is the letter of the Philippians. And so it's, I could ask you the questions, why is it called Philippians? And it's because it's a letter from Paul to Christians that were in the city of Philippi. And this is where the city of Philippi is located. So you have Greece there on, on the left, and it's part of, part of Greece, but the Aegean Sea there. So you, got, you have Philippi. Now here's another question. Why is Philippi called Philippi? And to answer that question, I'll show you this guy's head. And it's called Philippi because of uh, this guy here. This is uh, Philip uh, II of Macedon. And this is a, a statue of his head. You know, he, I, uh, he didn't listen to his mom when she said, if you blow your nose too hard, you're going to blow it off. So I'm assuming that's what happened there. So, you know, kids, listen to your mom. Uh, no, but he was, he was a conqueror. This is about the time that the Greek empire was kind of in his ascendancy. This is a few hundred years before Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that, um, that Philip II did, he's the father, by the way, of Alexander the Great, if you've heard of him. So he's the father of Alexander the Great, and he conquers this city uh, that used to have a different name, and the city was Crenides, and he conquers it, and then he decides, I'm going to rename this city after myself. I'm Philip, and the city is now Philippi. So that is how the city of Philippi got its name, and that's why it's the letter to the Philippians. So that happened 356 B.C. So... You have uh, about three and a half hundred uh, years before the time of Christ. Then the next thing that's helpful for us to remember as far that ties into this for world history is something that happens, well, about 300 years after this guy. Uh, in his day and then Alexander the Great's day, the, you know, the, the Greeks were on the ascendancy. They conquered uh, the, most of the known world at the time. They spread the Greek language. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek, because most people um, uh, knew Greek as kind of the, the trade language for that era. But eventually the Romans uh, gained ascendancy and basically took over. And so you have uh, Julius Caesar. And something that happened in the year of 44 BC on March 15th is that Julius Caesar is assassinated. So he is killed in the Roman Forum. I've been able to see the spot where uh, this, this happened. Uh, but a bunch of senators thought, this guy is having too much power. I know we made him dictator for emergency purposes, but he seems to be hanging on to this. And so for the good of the Roman Empire, we think this is the right thing. We're going to assassinate him. So this group of senators, they stab him to death. If you think politics today is ugly, uh, not something that's uh, real new. So, two of the people that uh, assassinate him are Brutus and Cassius. So, these are names that you, you might have heard. And so, this plunges the Roman Empire then into a period of civil war, another period of civil war. And it goes on for the next about year and a half. And so, there's different battles. And in this civil war, you have Brutus and Cassius on, on one side. And on the other side, uh, two of the, the generals there are, one is Octavian and the other is Mark Antony. And familiar with Mark Antony from Cleopatra, it's that guy. But there were these Roman generals, and they had this huge clash in this civil war. And the last battle of this civil war was fought just outside a city called Philippi. And so this is a painting of this, of, um, 
I guess one of these guys is supposed to be Brutus, uh, being depressed after the battle went poorly. And this happened in, in October, um, so we just started October here, of uh, 42 BC when this happened. And in this first engagement of this attack and things that happened, October 3rd, 42 BC, Cassius is defeated by Mark Anthony, and Cassius then uh, commits suicide. The, things, the battle goes on for a while. There's a final engagement on October 23rd. Brutus and his forces are defeated. Brutus then commits suicide. And so the forces of uh, Octavian and Mark Anthony, they win. And now they take control, along with their allies, of the, the whole Roman Empire. Okay, this is important because one of those guys, Octavian, uh, becomes known to us later. He becomes the first emperor of Rome. And so he becomes the person that we know as, uh, as Caesar Augustus. So, and he rules for quite a long time, even uh, you know, up through the, uh, the birth of Christ. So he's uh, the first Roman Empire, very uh, important. And after they won this final victory in Philippi, and that was a big battle. It's said by historians there were maybe like 200,000 soldiers that were in this battle. It was a huge, massive conflict. And once they finished this battle, they left a lot of the, the soldiers there uh, to kind of colonize Philippi. And after uh, Octavian or Caesar Augustus uh, ascends, they make Philippi into an official Roman colony. So they colonize it, and they populate it then with many more uh, veterans, Roman soldiers that are retired, so they go there to, to live there. Uh, so you have a lot of Romans, it has a lot of Roman culture that comes with it, but then also being an efficient, official Roman colony, uh, this means that the, the Philippians then become Roman citizens. We take it for granted being citizens of the United States. If you're born here, you're a citizen. But in the Roman Empire, you had this, this big sprawling empire, but not everyone was a citizen. In fact, it was pretty rare, especially in the outlying kind of areas. Uh, but the Philippians, they were very proud that they were official citizens of Rome. And as citizens, they had different rights and responsibilities. Paul also happened to be a citizen of Rome, and that's why he could appeal to Caesar. Uh, normally, you didn't have due process. You didn't have that type of thing. So it was a big deal to be a citizen of the Roman Empire. So with this in kind of the background, I think when we work our way through this passage, when you think of um, Roman citizenship and the Philippians and how glad they are that they are citizens of Rome, and you think of the Roman soldiers and how many that are uh, you know, populating uh, Philippi and the culture in uh, that, that city because of this. So the reason I say this and all of this, how this becomes especially helpful here, is that when we get back to our passage, and that command saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The phrase that's there that says, let your manner of life, that's how it's translated for us in English, but it actually comes from one word in Greek, the language that the New Testament was originally written in. And it's tough to translate in a way that really captures um, for us what this means uh, in a way that's not so long and clunky, uh, but it has the idea of not just living your life, but living your life as a citizen of 
a place that you are a citizen of. And the Greek word there is, you don't have to remember this, was from polituomai. Uh, but in Greek, a polis was a city or a city-state. And we even see that in, in our language, a, a polis. Uh, you have cities like Minneapolis. And so any city that has polis at the end, it's because that's the Greek word for city or city-state. And back then, the city-state was like the, the main uh, kind of unit of, uh, you know, where you identified and your, your civil life and everything that's there. We also get the word politics from it, which uh, we think of, the, oh, politics, that's a dirty word, but it just meant being involved in the life of the city, caring for that, helping uh, the city to, to go well and to be administered and to be a responsible citizen of the, the city-state of this community that you were a citizen of. And so with this in the background, Paul using this word that has this idea of uh, acting like a good citizen of your community, of your, your city-state, the Philippians are going to hear that in a certain way. And in fact, Paul later on, he'll make this really clear. When we get to Philippians 3.20, he'll say to them, really just kind of outright, he'll say, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. That yes, in one sense, we're citizens here of, of this world and the communities that God has put us in, but we have an even higher citizenship that we are in, our ultimate citizenship. But again, this phrase, let your manner of life, comes from this word that can be translated behave as a citizen. So live your life as a citizen of this community that you find yourself in and that you have both privileges, you have responsibilities, you have, you have meaning that comes from this. It's an important thing. You don't want to bring uh, disgrace or disorder to this community. You want, to, you want to help it. But here he's not talking to the Philippians primarily about, uh, you know, be good citizens of the Roman Empire. Be good citizens of the, the city of, of Philippi. He's saying live your life in a way that you're good citizens of uh, Jesus' heavenly kingdom that you are in that we, you enter not by a decree from the Roman emperor, but from God letting you into this based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would be excluded from this citizenship, but we're included because of, of this good news that the Son of God, the God-man, has died on the cross for sinners. And that those who in, in repentant faith turned to Jesus Christ and trust in him alone have their sins washed away, not because of the good we do, but because Jesus has paid the price in full on the cross for us. And he has lived a perfect life for us, uh, fulfilling God's law completely in our place, doing what he, only he could do as fully God and fully human, uh, obeying God's law for us as a human being and dying in our place. And because he is also the God-man, he is fully God, his death being valuable enough that it, it can pay for uh, all, anyone at all that will turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior. So, when we think of this, the calling that we have is to live our lives in a way that, that matches this identity that we've been giving through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it says to, to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel, I think we, we don't want to misunderstand that to think, well, I need to make myself worthy of this salvation because that's never going to happen. You know, in this life, we're always going to struggle with sin. We're never going to make ourselves like worthy where it's like, I've been such a good person now that, yeah, obviously Jesus should have died for me. 
because look what I've become. That's, that's the wrong way of thinking about this. But when it says to live your life in a way that's worthy, uh, it means to live your life in a way that is, that is compatible with this message, that is compatible with that, that you are a Christian, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are a citizen of, of his kingdom, not living a way that seems just radically inconsistent with that, where if you said, I'm a Christian, and people looked at the way you lived your life, they'd say, what? What you say and what you claim that you are doesn't match how I see you living your life. It doesn't match what, it, what comes out of your mouth. It doesn't match what you, you post on social media. It doesn't match what seems to be the things that you love and value the most. That would be living in a way that's just inconsistent with genuinely uh, being part of Jesus' kingdom. But instead, to live in a way that people see that, oh, you are living under the, the, the lordship of, of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, that you're living in a way that you're showing gratitude to him, that you seem to really care that, that God loved you enough that he died on the cross in your place, that you believe the truths that are written in the, in the Bible, you believe that you have um, responsibility given to you from God and, and to each other as Christians together. Because citizens aren't just citizens by themselves, they're citizens with other citizens under the king that they are under. So you can live your life in a way that either matches well with that, or you can live your life in a way that seems to just go in the opposite direction of all of this. I remember the uh, very first time I drove up to West Michigan, and I was driving for up here for um, well, I had two interviews at different churches, uh, but I was coming up 131, and there was a billboard on 131. This is a while back. Uh, it was a tourism bull, uh, bull, uh, billboard for Holland, Michigan. Okay? And so you know, you know Holland, Michigan? It, it's called Holland, Michigan. And so on this, it's you know, Holland, Michigan, and there's all the things that you would expect. There's, there's tulips, there's windmills, there's wooden shoes, all these Dutch things. And then I noticed that the slogan that was there, said, Holland, an all-American city. <laughs> all-American city. Okay, the, uh, not only is it called Holland, but just the images and everything doesn't seem to be matching. I'm not seeing baseball and apple pie. and I mean, it's all fine, and, you know, but uh, <laughs> there seemed to be a mismatch to me that seemed odd. When people look at your life, when they look at our lives, did they see something that's consistent or is the way you're living your life come across as a mismatch to people? Being a citizen means that you care about the good and the reputation of the community that you're a citizen of, especially the king that you are, that you are under. It entails not just a bunch of rights, but also responsibilities to be lived out. And that's true in our earthly citizenship, but how much also in our, in our heavenly citizenship and being a citizen means that you're joined to other citizens as well. So there's all kinds of things we could talk about, and you, I think we ought to think about, you know, our lives. How do we live in a manner that's, that's worthy, a good match of being citizens of Christ's kingdom? And you can talk about your speech, you can talk about your conduct and things you do, but we need to now look at the examples that Paul gives here. And at first it seemed like, well, these aren't the examples that I would have gave, but this message needs to be dictated by what Scripture actually says. And the more I looked at this, I realized the things that Paul is going to describe here, he's saying this because 
being a citizen is not just an individual relationship with just you and the Lord. If you're a citizen, nobody's just a citizen one just by themselves. Even though we live in a society that is so individualistic, that it's just you and Jesus and, that, and God, that's all that matters. But we're meant to be also a community together. That's what uh, being a citizen together with other people under the Lord is all about. And I think when that clicked, it made more sense some of the, the concrete things that he talks about going forward. So, second part of this message, kind of unpacking what it means to be a citizen. We'll say to actually live like citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we'll need to do a few different things. And the first of these is to, to stand together. And we see this again in verse 27. Read it again. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. So the first thing they're to do is they're, they're called to, to stand together, to, uh, to be united, to be in formation together. I remember Philippi is populated with lots and lots and lots of retired Roman soldiers. And so Roman soldiers, you know, they were very disciplined and they had, you know, perfected a lot of arts of, of combat and warfare and their formation and their tactics was a big part of this. And one of the uh, tactics they had was uh, they called the, the tortoise formation. And so you would have these Roman soldiers that they would line up like this in the front row. They would take their shields and put it in front of them. They get all close together. So uh, the shield is, you know, just right up to their eyes so they can still see. And then you would have a few other soldiers behind them in different rows. And the ones behind, they would raise their shields above and basically make a, uh, a lid for this. So if the enemy's raining down arrows or whatnot on them, they're protected from the front. They're protected from the top. You know, if they need to, some of the guys on the side could shift to the side as well. And they would train to do this so they could advance in this formation and basically be protected like a, like a giant tortoise until they needed to you know, engage the enemy directly. So to me, it, I just think with the audience and the, the Philippians being told to stand together, a lot of them, their, their minds might go to something like this. And think if you are together in a Roman formation like this, and you decide, you know what, I want to do my own thing. I'm going to, I don't want to do this with my shield. I'm going to run off to the side or I'm going to put my shield somewhere else. You're leaving other people vulnerable too. Whereas if they stood together, if they gave protection for one another and support and help, then they're able to, uh, to engage, to be defended, to do what they're supposed to do in a way that gives protection not just to themselves but to others. And so as Christians, isn't this something that we're supposed to do as well? That instead of, especially within a local church, that instead of you know, problems that a lot of churches, even in New Testament times, have where you have divisions, you have self-interest, you have uh, fights and squabbles. And we're going to see as we move into Philippians chapter 2, he's going to talk about uh, humility. Paul is going to talk about having, uh, putting the interests of others ahead of your own self-interest. And he's going to talk about how Christ is the ultimate example of that. We're going to get into that right when we get into chapter 2 next week. But this is a way of uh, putting 
the interests of the others in the other citizens in your community and us caring for each other? You know, do we do that? Do we, do we fight? Do we jockey for position? Or do we protect each other? Do we help each other genuinely? Do we try to protect each other from the, the slings and arrows of, of the enemy of, of life? Do we pick each other up when we fall? Do we try to, to stand together? And Paul calls believers to do this and to do it in, he says, in, in one spirit. And when he says that in one spirit, that could mean just to do it together in one attitude. I mean, it could also very likely be a reference to the one Holy Spirit because the capitalization is uh, added uh, later, whether it's uppercase or lowercase. Uh, that's a decision the editors have to make. It could be talking about the Holy Spirit because we are united together by the Holy Spirit that unites us together in the body of Christ. We have that unity. So we are together with uh, the other Christians that are in our community. Community is so, so important. So we're to stand together, and we're also called to, to strive together. See that in verse 27, and we'll read into verse 28 as well. After it says, standing to firm in one spirit, and says, and with one mind, so one attitude, one mindset, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So believers were to, to strive together. So it's not just, you know, standing, it sounds like it could be passive. You're just staying in one place. You know, striving is active. You're, you're engaged. You're uh, engaged in a, some kind of you know, contest or, or a fight. Not, like, not that we're supposed to be just... Uh, you know, aggressively, you know, fighting people, but there's uh, engagement that we're uh, supposed to have, helping people in Christ in, in love. And so, when we think of this, strive together, um, the English here phrase says, strive side by side, and, in, and this is also, I know we have a little bit of Greek show and tell here, a little bit more than usual, but it's from, again, one Greek word, and it's soon uh, ethleo, and this comes from, uh, it's basically a compound word. And if you hear the second part of that, ethleo, are you able to maybe take a guess as far as what English words we get from that? Ethleo. We get um, athlete, athletics from this. Uh, so sometimes, maybe some translations might have this as, you know, contending side by side. Uh, and that means you're like a, a contestant in a, not in the price is right, but in like a, a sporting engagement. And so you're um, engaging in, it literally could be translated to engage in an athletic contest or to even to wrestle. So that's the second part of it, athleo, and the first part is soon, and that means together with or united. So we are together with one another, um, I, engaging in athletic contests or uh, wrestling together. So that's why they translate it as striving side by side. So you think of some of the athletic competitions and things today. I mean, obviously, you know, they didn't have football uh, back then. But you think of, you know, football today and just what uh, teamwork needs to take place. You know, not only standing together. I mean, if you're, you know, linemen don't stand together in the right way, there, there you go. Uh, but they, you are, you're fighting, you're um, 
you're, you're, you're contending, you're putting forth this effort uh, to live the life together that you're supposed to live, but doing this not just in your, as an independent person, but with the help and support of those that are around you. Trying to um, tell other people about Christ, trying to help this, this world be a better place, of doing what we need to do. So the Christian life, it's, it's not passive. We need to work together. We need to stand together, and we need to strive together. And then verse 28, it says, not being frightened in anything by your opponents. And that's a word that's actually not used anywhere else in the Bible or in, in uh, Hebrew literature, but it's used by the, the Greeks and Romans sometimes of a horse that gets startled and gets spooked, maybe especially in battle, that all of a sudden this horse freaks out and goes crazy. So it's saying we're, we're not like that. We're not like the people that, uh, that just scared and we flee and we, we run because we know that the victory is certain. We know how this turns out in the end. And therefore, we can have a, a confidence that uh, shows you know, the, the opponents that we're not frightened, we're not intimidated, we're not going to back away. It's like if you have a, a football team that is, is cowering because uh, of the other team, we're not like that. Instead, we have a confidence that we know that in the end that we win because Jesus wins. And that actually frees us up not to, not to gloat, but actually to love our enemies, to care for them because we know that they can't ultimately hurt us and that we can show love to them instead. And definitely we don't think that this means, well, okay, we're, we're victors, we're not, um, uh, you know, frightened about this. But that doesn't mean that we have this attitude that uh, life is just going to be perfect, that there's not going to be struggles, that there's not going to be trials, that there's not going to be suffering. And Paul, along with many other places in the New Testament, is really clear on this. So we're called to stand together, to strive together, and we're also called that we are to, to suffer together that suffering together is this part of the Christian life. It's something to be expected. Paul is uh, letting us know this. The, Paul does not expect that living for Christ is going to be easy. There are people that, for whatever reason, are going to be against that. I mean, in the ancient world, there are people that, what, you, you believe that Jesus Christ is more important than the Roman emperor or all these practices that we engage in? Therefore, we hate you, and we're going to be against you, try to put you to death. And in the same way, we don't have the same allegiances to the things of the world that the people around us have. And it can cause a lot of, a lot of conflict. So, verses 29 through 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, okay, that's great, you believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul, in these verses, he states that two things have been granted to us. And the word that's used there for granted is the same word that we get grace from. Okay, so we've received two gifts, two uh, gracious gifts that have been given to us by God that he mentions here. And the first one, we can be really happy about the first one. First one, he says, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him. This is important. Our salvation comes from God. It is a gift to us. 
that we are saved uh, by grace and by, by grace alone. It is not any bit earned by us, deserved by us. And if we really take a look at the words that he is saying here, that we receive it by faith, by trusting, but ultimately we recognize that, uh, that behind the surface, even the reason that you came to put your faith in Jesus Christ was because God was at work in your heart. And so that even your believing is a gift from him. If he had left us just on our own, our hardened hearts would have said, no, thank you, God, and we would have just rebelled forever. But he was at work in your heart. If you're a Christian, he drew you to him. So you did believe, you did that, but it was because he was working in your heart to do that. So all of this, your salvation from beginning to end, this is a gift from God. It's been granted to you. It's been gifted to you. And we're happy for that part. But he tells us there's another gift that we have received, and it is suffering. We don't think of suffering as as a gift. And in itself, it isn't if you just look at suffering by itself, but when you recognize that there's a sense where we are, if you are suffering in this life for the sake of Christ, there is an attachment there to the one that suffered so you could be a Christian to begin with. As we get ready, we take the Lord's Supper in a little bit, and we're thinking about his death in our place, his body broken for us, his blood that is shed for us. We do not serve a king that was, that was far and distant, a God that said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you suffer, but I'm above that. We worship a Lord and Savior that suffered worse than, than any of us. Because it's not just the physical death that he suffered, but he took upon himself the, the, the wrath uh, that all of us deserve, the just punishment that we deserve, that the eternity in hell that I deserve on my own, that Jesus Christ absorbed that for me on the cross and for you as well. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't know that yet, to realize that this offer is there for you and to come under him to realize that you have, can have one that is a mediator between you and a holy God. So we worship someone that has suffered in our place. And so if we suffer for him, and if we realize this is part of of living for him, being part of, uh, we don't see this as shame. We see this as something that uh, we have, in a sense, a privilege to be able to suffer the way that our Lord suffered. Again, we're not seeking it. We're not uh, just sadomasochists or something like that. But we would have the attitude that the Christians had in Acts 5.41, which says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's the name of Jesus, his reputation, his glory, his honor. So there is victory in the end, but there's suffering along the way. And yes, we may suffer, but we don't suffer alone. Because we are citizens together with all the others that also believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And yeah, there's going to be conflict in this life. It talks about that in verse 30. Paul was experiencing conflict. They are experiencing conflict. We should expect this. We should realize this is a normal part of Christian life in a fallen world that we are in. Because Paul does not expect that living for Christ will be easy. You know, we think of citizenship, and it's so easy for us to think of just all the, the benefits, all the rights and privileges. 
But think about people that are citizens somewhere where they are in a state of, of heavy conflict. Think about the citizens of the Ukraine, in Ukraine right now, for the past several months since the uh, Russian invasion began. And think about how they have had to live out their citizenship as citizens of Ukraine. And they are, in a literal sense, standing together, striving together, and suffering together as citizens of their country. Yet as Christians, as Christians, so often we tend to think that Christianity is about our individual comfort. That we have this gospel message we're in, and so that we as individuals can live comfortable, safe, secure, peaceful lives. Instead of realizing that we are called together to stand, strive, and suffer together. That's what Paul is getting across to us. Think about these things. If you actually live like citizens of Jesus' kingdom, if we do this together, it will mean that we need to stand together, to strive together, and to expect to suffer together for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words. Lord, you use them to shake us from the complacency of thinking that the whole reason that you came for us is for our individual comfort. But Lord, you have made us citizens uh, together with our other believers and ultimately under Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our King, as our authority, Lord God, to do as you tell us to do, Lord. And you have given us a mission of, that involves uh, suffering as we seek to love each other and to love the world that's around us, even those that are hostile to us, Lord God. Give us the supernatural strength we need to do this, recognizing that, that you came, that Jesus came, for those that were hostile to him, Lord God. Lord, help us to be ambassadors for you as we live in this colony, as this, this outpost in a, in a world that doesn't recognize your kingship. Help us live as citizens together and for your glory. We praise you. We praise Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.